Well, Merry Christmas season to you. We're excited to be celebrating our big Christmas Sunday today. Uh, we're still going to meet next week and have another family gathering, as I was just sharing. Uh, the reason why our bigger Sunday is today is because we uh, recognize the place in which we live. A lot of people are traveling and all the rest of it, so we just tried to try to capture the, the season a little bit earlier. So that was really fun with that. But again, as I mentioned, uh, as they were exiting the stage, next week is going to be a fat family gathering. So a little bit more intimate of a setting with, with kind of the kids in mind as they're here. It's going to be a shorter sermon, don't worry. I have little ones myself. I know how time, expand, uh, time is limited even, even there. So we'll, we'll be doing that, but I hope you guys can join us for that. Uh, today we are going to be continuing the Christmas series that we kicked off last week. We're calling Tis the Season. So if you have a Bible, you brought one with you, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. The words will be up on the screen. You can follow along there. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and before we do that, let me, let me say a prayer. Father, what a treat to be able to uh, celebrate Christmas with our little ones on the stage here. Uh, we know there's many more in the, in the nursery as well. Lord, thank you for them. What a gift. What a joy that they just bring to us. Lord, would you bless each of those? Uh, keep them healthy and safe. Uh, would you be with, the, with their families, the parents? Um, Lord, help us to really... Um, Raise them well such that they would be your gospel light in this place that, you've, that you have us. And Father, as we continue to move or press further into this Christmas season, we just ask that you would be front and center, especially now as we turn to your word. Lord, would you please give us your spirit as we seek to understand what you have in front of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, read this way. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, one of my favorite things about the Christmas season is all the lights. I mean, I just love how the lights get up on all the trees. I love how the lights get up on the homes. I mentioned this a little offhandedly last week, but it seems like our society is itching to celebrate Christmas all that much earlier with lights going up before Thanksgiving I saw this year. It's almost as if with you know, these years of pandemic and all that sort of thing, people are like, we could use some Christmas already. I love the neighborhoods that are just decked out with lights. You know how that goes. It's like one family or one person is just really excited to go above and beyond, and they, they have their house just all decorated in their lawn with the nativity scene or whatever. Maybe even they have like the radio music to accompany it, where you just like look at the lights as they shine in the music. And then everybody else in the neighborhood, you know, sees what that person's doing. They're like, we're not going to be outdone. Or maybe we want to join in the festivities. And then over the years, you know, there's a couple of houses like outlier that they don't have the lights up, but they realize they don't want to be those people. So they put up lights and the whole neighborhood is decked out in these lights. And it's just wonderful to walk through it or drive through it. 
and these, these grassroots like light shows. It's, it's wonderful. And I especially love our kids being able to enjoy that because having grown up in the Bay Area, it's not like they see all that many stars. So it's like you just see the lights, you get to experience Christmas. I love all of that. And you know, the true Christmas is about light, about God sending his light into the world. This is how Jesus spoke of himself. This is in John 8 when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The text that we are looking at today, Isaiah chapter 9, foretold of this light almost 700 years before Jesus. He's looking ahead to Jesus, the light of the world coming in into the world. But one thing we need to understand both in terms of what Jesus referenced, but also in terms of our text today in Isaiah 9, is in order to understand the beauty and wonderful promises of the light of Christmas, we need to understand something of, of darkness. Okay, and that's where our text starts. If you want to look again at verse 2 of Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has dawned. So we need to understand darkness. We kind of need to grasp it and understand it before we can understand the true promises of the wonderful light. It seems to me that the last few years have been a bit of a wake-up call for our society. I feel like the last few years have kind of shaken us up a little bit in terms of maybe starting to understand to the level we're talking about here. Like, yeah, maybe we could see that there's darkness around us. I mean, with the pandemic with societal and political tensions, with the things that we see happening in our environment. It's a little easier in our creature comfort of a society here in 21st century Silicon Valley to maybe see just a little bit more clearly. Yeah, I could see that there's some darkness around us. It's like one of my uh, favorite uh, comedians say, Dimitri Martin, I don't know if you follow him at all, but he, he has this little bit where he talks about, he's like, man, I wish the news would just own it and call themselves not just the news, that we're not in the news, we're what's wrong? So it's like, hi, it's six o'clock. Here's what's wrong. And it's like the local news. Here's what's wrong closest to you. That, that sort of thing. And I, you know, I realize like I really resonate when I hear things like that. Cause I'll take out my phone and I'll just check the news. Cause I'm a, especially cause I'm a pastor. I need to know what's going on in the world and just keep tabs on it. But I got to discipline myself. I got to limit myself to just reading. Cause as time goes on, it just seems like there's more and more things just happening. There's a, there's a lot of darkness out there. I came across two influential thought leaders this last week, just kind of sharing independently of each other, separate from one another, both of them sharing how basically so many of the world's problems that we're facing right now, you just kind of start listing them out. When you, when you think about so many of the problems facing the world today, they were essentially saying they're unsolvable. And I was listening to these guys, and I was just like, man, that's kind of gloomy. And it is. It is kind of gloomy. And yet it also kind of speaks to what the Bible is ultimately getting at when it says, hey, there's, there's darkness we need to recognize. There, there is darkness. I mean, when I, uh, this is part of my story, I'll often share it at Welcome Lunch. When I was studying politics at, at UC Berkeley, I, I both loved doing it, but I also was like getting depressed as I did it because it was really enjoyable. But at the same time, it's like if, if, if political initiatives and the rest of it are all we have as solutions to the world's problems, we're, we're in a world of, uh, of trouble. What ultimately is the darkness that the Bible talks about? Well, it's not ultimately our, just our external troubles or just these external woes that we all face societally or, or personally. Uh, one of those influential leaders that I referenced earlier was actually Bill Gates. And he, when he was talking about these problems essentially being unsolvable, he, he basically boiled it down to the fact because we're all people. And all the people involved in trying to find solutions are still 
people. <laughs> we can't work together. We have hard times kind of getting past each other's stubbornness and, and all the rest of it. And I realized, man, that's kind of getting to the point of what the scriptures teach. Because when it talks about the darkness that exists in the world, it's, it's not just a darkness that's out there. But it's a darkness that ultimately begins in here. The true light of Christmas, we need to understand, shines in the midst of darkness. And this was definitely the case when this original prophecy was given to God's people almost 700 years before Christ. When Isaiah wrote these prophetic words to these, to these ancient Israelites, they were staring down a scarier darkness than anything we've ever faced as a society. I mean, they literally had the Assyrians... The Assyrians, this warring, conquering nation upon their doorstep, ready to just conquer them and take them into exile. We're talking a scary, deep darkness these guys were facing. But you know what? It's not as if that darkness, so to speak, happened upon them in a vacuum. Because if you take a survey of the scriptures, what you'll find is for hundreds of years before Isaiah, you have other prophets, many prophets, Many prophets that God sent over and over again to his people to say, hey, you've turned away from me in my ways. Come back. I mean, ever since about the time historically of King David, then King Solomon, God's people essentially started to say, you know what, God? We think you're cool and all that, but we're going to do things our way. We want to do things our way. And they just started doing things in that way. And God kept saying, if you do that, it's just going to come to bear for you eventually. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove my favor and eventually one of these many one of these many warring nations around you, I'm going to allow to go ahead and conquer you, take you into exile. And that's eventually what happened. The Assyrians, in this case, when we look at Isaiah 9, were a darkness, but the real darkness was one that had been brewing inside of them. And that was just essentially rejecting God and his ways. And you know what's a real important reminder for those of us who are followers of God, who identify as, as Christian and, and, and he's our, our first and he's, who's, he's who we're trying to follow? An important thing to note here is Isaiah ultimately was writing to God's people. He was writing to the people of God with these things, saying, "This is what's going to happen. This is what you need. This is the darkness that's out there." Which I think ought to give us pause, starting with Christians, to say that we need God's light. And that's really where we start to get at the gospel, which we'll unpack as we go here. The good news of Jesus is this darkness ought to first help us recognize our need for light recognize our need for help. But what Isaiah is showing us in talking to God's people specifically as Christian friends, that includes receiving this light on an ongoing basis. So before we move on to the next point, let me just start by asking, by way of reflection, where might there be internal darkness that, you're, that you have right now? Maybe in a relationship, what you bring to the table maybe in an, in an addictive uh, behavior, maybe it's worries or fears, just an area of darkness that's impacting your life, and not just with you, but perhaps with others as well. The invitation here is God wants to shed light, to, to bring it to light so you can start, start to experience this wonderful promise of the light that we're going to now turn to. Let's read again Isaiah 9 verse 2 and focus on the other half of this verse. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, I love that sentiment, that little phrase there, has dawned, because what it's saying here is not that a light just merely showed up, like, you know, just turned on. It's saying it, it has dawned, meaning it, it came from outside. Uh, I love the, the, the picture of here. One commentator 
really breaks it down. He says, he said it this way. He said, if you think about it in terms of the sun's light, in terms of a metaphor being the sun's light, which is clearly what Isaiah is talking about as it has dawned, right? Really what we see then is this light brings three things. He says, life, truth, and beauty. Let's, let's hit on these real quickly uh, in, in succession here. Number one, this outside light brings life. Uh, we know this is the case with the sun. If the sun were to not shine tomorrow, we'd, be, we, we'd freeze up real quickly and not be around. Uh, you, the light of the sun brings life. So too does the scriptures teach God bring light to us in life in this way, that he is our sustainer, that, that we exist, that we breathe, that we, that we walk because of his care. This, sun, this, this light brings life, but this light also shines truth. Light reveals truth. If not for God's light, where would we, retur- where would we turn? So for instance, for morality, for, for truth, like where would we turn? I have heard it said many times, many times, actually even, even in the last little bit, that where we turn to truth or morality ultimately comes down to what we collectively decide as such. The problem with that thinking is history is rep- replete with example after example of a majority owning the morality in an ending, not just in kind of bad ways, but in horrific ways. The other issue with that is if, if morality ultimately begins and ends with us personally, who's to say we can't shift our own morality as it suits our needs? There's a reason the scriptures teach that all cultures essentially throughout time and throughout space have essentially all had a very similar morality foundation underneath it all. And, and, and the scriptures talk about how God gives us the conscience, how deep down we just know good and, and bad and, and right and, and wrong. God gives us his truth and his light through Jesus specifically is, is, is to reveal, reveal truth as it is to bring life. And then and finally, this light brings beauty, this commentator says, which I think is really help, helpful. Light fundamentally doesn't, it isn't what we see when it shines, right? I mean, fundamentally, light reveals, it shines on and reveals what it is that we ultimately are seeing. I, I love those little segments on planet Earth or our planet, you know, those, those documentaries on Nat Geo or whatever, where they'll do a time lapse have the camera up in some sort of, you know, uh, satellite up there, and you see the curvature of the earth, and it's, and it's all dark. You see the vastness of space, and then you see, you know, kind of little highlights of the earth, and then the lights, like, kind of lighting up the city areas. But then the time lapse is all about, like, you know, the time in which the sun kind of comes over the horizon, which we experience as, as dawn, of course. And you just see the light just revealing the beauty of the blue earth that we live on. Like, I, I love all of that. There's a reason there's an emphasis so much here on joy. If you look at verse 3, it says, You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. God's ultimate aim is for us to experience joy and rejoicing. And we experience that through his light and and, and coming to him for who he is and and his ways. You know, I I love this little uh, word picture here where it says, as warriors rejoice over the plunder. I can't help but think about our own warriors, actually. We weren't rejoicing last night if you're watching the game. We weren't weren't rejoicing. Steph Curry, yeah, anyways, we weren't rejoicing. But back to this idea. We're not a warring society, right? So this, you know, this idea is a little lost on us. But could you only imagine the elation that an ancient warrior would have felt after, you know, being victorious in a battle that would have amounted to them becoming subjugated to their enemies and all that? Just the elation, just the excitement. 
my literal 10-year-old gets so excited when, you know, the Warriors or whatever score a goal, let alone if it's close. I mean, he just, it, it just, his little 10-year-old body is just letting out as much as he can. Let's go, you know. That doesn't even compare to a Warriors relation, you know, when, they've, when they're victorious, which in turn doesn't compare to what God wants to give you and me in his light, the joy and rejoicing that it's ultimately going to lead to because of Christ, which really leads us to this, this last thought, and that is how we tap into this light, how we receive this light while well, we receive Jesus. Because this prophecy written by Isaiah, again, 700 years before Christ, was ultimately pointing towards Christ. I mean, in verse 6, again, this, this won't be on, on the board for you, but here's the link to Christmas. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Matthew, in his gospel or biographical account of Jesus, introduced Jesus in light of our text today in, in Isaiah. Listen to how he intru- introduced Jesus' life and ministry. It says in Matthew 4, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said about the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Now, Matthew, of course, quotes our text as clearly fulfilled in Jesus' Galilean ministry. He highlights the fact that because Jesus was spending so much of his time in this northern part of Israel, the Galilee region, he was really kind of fulfilling what Isaiah had said about him 700 years or so before him. But of course, Jesus also claimed this for himself. As I read earlier, I am the light of the world, he said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Now, what did this light of the world come to do? It's really fascinating. If you look at just about all, three of the four gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, when they talk about Jesus being crucified on the cross, when he's up there on the tree, it marks, it, it, they, they each emphasize the fact that darkness clouded the world, that darkness came over the world. From about 12 o'clock noon to about 3 o'clock, darkness came over the world. What is that all about? Why would three of these four gospel writers highlight that fact? Well, they were talking about how this light of the world came to deal with the darkness. And not just darkness in general, but darkness here. You know, when after each of these times, it also says, after light, uh, the darkness came over the world, it also says that Jesus cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As much we could say about this, but it's one of the few times Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father, heavenly father. He said, refers to him as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? What's up with all this darkness? Well, on the cross, as Jesus was dying for the sins of the world, he experienced our darkness on our behalf. In order to give us light, his life, a restored relationship with God and, and, and life eternal with him in heaven. It's the promise of forgiveness of sins and deliverance out of the darkness. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus that you can receive today. It's just a free gift that we receive and we say thank you for. But the promise that we see back here in Isaiah chapter 9 doesn't just, isn't just about the next life, which, I mean, that would be wonderful enough as is. It talks about, especially verse 6, 
these wonderful ways that God is here for us now, specifically how Jesus is here for us now. Let's look at this one more time. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's look at these in pairs real quick. It says, Jesus is our mighty God and our everlasting Father. That's by way of saying God is able and he is willing to help you no matter what you face. He is our mighty God. He is able and he's our everlasting Father. He is willing to help you whatever you face. Now, you may say, but David, what about all those times things don't work out all that well? What about those times where things are really hard and they end, end really poorly? Well, Think about the Israelites as they received this promise themselves back in Isaiah's time, about 700 years before Christ. I mean, for them, they literally had the Assyrians staring them down, that darkness. Remember that? And you know what? In fact, the Assyrians would conquer them and take them into exile. What about that time? I mean, that promise was given right then and there. How come God didn't show up for them then? Well, This is actually what shows us to be the case that God is able to be there and is willing to be there. It's just not always in the ways that we would necessarily think or want ourselves. God didn't want to have his people taken into exile. He didn't want them conquered. He wanted them to turn back to him. But in the end, as he had been saying for hundreds of years, turn back to me. When they didn't turn back, he said, okay, I'm I'm going to let this happen so that you will come back to me eventually. I'm going to let it happen. And, you know, I think we all understand this on some level. I mean, even being far from perfect parents, we understand there's some times where it's in the best interest of our kids to discipline them or maybe even let something hard, let them learn something, quote, the hard way, although, man, that takes a lot of wisdom. We're far from perfect and all that, but how much more so our, our, our heavenly everlasting father as he's thinking about us and mighty God able to protect us, he is able to. It might just not be in the way that you would want it to or think it ought to be, but the promise is for those, for those of you who call upon his name, it will be for your best. That's the objection, but the promise is wonderful and true. He is your everlasting father. He is your mighty God. He is able to be there for you and he is willing to be there for you. And then let's look at the second pair. It says, Jesus is our wonderful counselor and our prince of peace. Seems to me this is saying he, can, he really knows what you're going through, whatever it is. And he really can relate to you, whatever it is you're facing. I mean, look again at this text. This is a fascinating. Verse 6 says, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Uh, you probably know, even if you didn't grow up in the church, that that is like very theologically rich. I mean, there has been theologians who have spoken about like God becoming man, the incarnate, like just you could write like many books on this whole thing. So what can we say? Well, let's just think about it in this sense. It means God took on flesh and really truly walked how we walk. And understands the different things we face. In fact, the gospel tells us that on the cross, he faced a greater darkness than anything that you and I will ever face. Which means he really knows what you're going through. And he can really relate as a wonderful counselor, bring wisdom and love in that sense. As a prince of peace, giving you a peace that truly transcends all understanding, as it says in Philippians 4. I've said this before, but if you're going through a really hard time, if you've ever gone to friends and you're just trying to process and work something out with them, uh, what I have found is I'll go to friends and I'm in the midst of this hard time and they'll say something like, it'll, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, they're there, it'll be okay. And those are tremendously helpful words if it's coming from a friend. But then, you know, perhaps with another friend, I'll go to them and they'll have gone through themselves just something at least as bad or maybe even 
like more challenging than the thing I'm facing and yet come out and come out on the other side okay. And yet they'll say the very same words, it'll be okay. It'll work out. Very same words, and yet it speaks to my heart in a, in a powerful way. Because they've been there, because they understand it truly. I mean, you think about that. As it, as it says that Jesus is our wonderful counselor and our prince of peace, it's not saying that he just conceptually knows what we're going through. Like he knows with a textbook mind what it is you're facing. It means that he truly can relate and minister to you with grace and truth, with, with wisdom, give you, and give you, give you peace. And you know, when it comes to being a wonderful counselor, he comes to us and gives us counsel in any number of ways. Sometimes it's, it's directly to our spirit, just trying to understand, oh, okay, just kind of understanding where he's, he's directing us. Sometimes it comes through other Christians, just wisdom through them to us. Sometimes it's directly from his word where he just wants to say this or that. But the promise is he will be your wonderful counselor. He will be your prince of peace, as he will also be your everlasting father and mighty God. What this text is saying, if I can summarize it, is Jesus will be there for you in every conceivable way. But the question comes, will we go to him? One of the things I love doing this time of year is coming back to this verse. Actually, I, 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 I do this uh, right after Christmas and before the, the New Year's because I love this verse in terms of helping me kind of look back at the year behind and look forward, uh, look ahead to the year to come. And I'd love to actually do that with you, you now in this space where we can just kind of reflect and kind of respond and, and use some time just to kind of come before God and, and, and think about these things in this way. But I want to ask two questions, and maybe you can even, you know, kind of bow your heads, close your eyes. Not, I'm not going to invite you to do anything uh, other than just kind of reflect and meditate here. But in, in meditation or in prayer, I want to ask you, you two questions here based on this text. The first question is, as you reflect on this last year, how do you feel, or let me say it in this way, in, in which way do you feel like God has especially been there for you? Okay? We said, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These attributes will be on the screen if you need to look up there for reference. But in what way, especially, do you feel like God has been there for you this last year? Um, you know, maybe almost certainly he's been there for you in, in multiple senses, but in what way is he especially, and let's just thank him, bring that to him in prayer and reflection. And then looking to the year ahead, in which of these ways do you especially anticipate needing him as your wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? In which of these ways do you especially anticipate needing him? Now, this might change in February or March as the year kind of takes shape. But just in this moment, in this space and time, in prayer and reflection, what way do you anticipate especially needing him in this year ahead? So, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son into the darkness to be the light of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for being cast into darkness, our darkness, on the cross to bring us into your light. Lord, while there still is darkness around us in this life, would you please help us live in the light you so freely offer us? And would you help us live 
in your life and truth and beauty. And would you help us readily turn to you as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's in the son that was born to us, the child that was given to us, name, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.